right, Genesis 22, the chapter before us is probably familiar to most of you. Uh, if you've been a Christian in any length of time at all, you probably know about this chapter. It's a famous account. It's one of the most astonishing accounts in the whole Bible. It astonishes me every time I read it, even to this minute. I find it to be that way. Um, in fact, it's, it causes you to tremble to even preach it because, it's, as Stephen said this morning, it's difficult. And... Uh, but I think it's definitely profitable for us spiritually. Uh, verse 1 is our introduction to the setting. It says here, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now the events to follow happen after these things, it says in chapter 22, verse 1. After what things? Mainly after the things mentioned in chapter 21 we talked about last week. That includes the miraculous birth of Isaac to uh, Abraham and Sarah. It includes the sending away of, of uh, Ishmael and Hagar, Ishmael the son of Hagar and Abraham. They sent him away. Remember that? And then there's this third section in chapter 21 we haven't dealt with yet. I'll deal with it more so maybe when we get to chapter 26. Since similar events happen in that chapter, we'll refer back to it. But very briefly, at the end of chapter 21 has to do with a peace treaty made between Abimelech. You remember Abimelech, the Philistine king from chapter 20? He made a, a treaty, a peace treaty with Abraham. It seems as uh, though uh, Abimelech didn't fully trust Abraham. Uh, look at verses 22 to 24 in chapter 21. Verse 22, now it came about at that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the, his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. You remember Abraham had dealt falsely with Abimelech in chapter 20. He lied about his wife. And uh, it's been a while. It's been a few years. But, a but Abimelech still wondering because Abraham is a very powerful chieftain. Uh, lives probably 25 miles from uh, where uh, Abimelech lives. He wants to be on a, a trustworthy terms with Abraham, so they agree to a peace treaty, to make a long story short. Then they have a dispute over a well that Abraham's servants dug, and they fight, and they talk about that, and that too is resolved. Look at verse 32. So they made a covenant of Beersheba. They make a covenant to get along with each other, to work with each other. The chapter concludes with Abraham doing what he typically does, worshiping God. Look at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, that, if there were, ever was an appropriate name for the Lord, it's the everlasting God. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, uh, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Abraham serves this eternal God. And since he, since he is eternal, <coughs> guess, that, what, guess that, what that means for us? 3,000 years later, we save, serve the same eternal God that Abraham did. Uh, it's great to think about that. So after these things in Genesis 21, we cross over to Genesis 22. And it's a later time in Abraham's life. We don't know exactly uh, how old, uh, how much later. But from the looks of things in chapter 22, probably Isaac is a teenager. Maybe even an older teenager. Some people say he's 20. Some people say he's 25. In all likelihood, he's uh, definitely a teenager. Probably an older teenager. We don't know exactly. But he's old enough to carry a load of wood for three days and then climb up a mountain. So he's got to have some age to him, some maturity, and we'll see that as we go along. But tonight, I want, to I want us to consider three actions 
the Lord takes in regard to Abraham in what has to be the toughest event of his entire life. The first action is this in verse, verse uh, is 1 to 10. The Lord tests Abraham. And by the way, I have notes in the back if you want to follow along with the verses that we're going to read. The Lord tests Abraham. Verse 1, God tested Abraham, it said. That's the setting. And to make things clear up front as to who's directing the affairs of this chapter, it is God, because not only do we see that in our English translation, but in the Hebrew construction of the sentence, the name God is especially emphasized as if to say God tested Abraham. It's all about him. So while Abraham and Isaac are the human characters uh, involved in this chapter, the one superintending the events, the one behind all the events of this chapter, and we'll see it again and again, <coughs> is God himself. The word tested means to try someone, to prove someone, to see what that person is made of. You know, when you take a test, uh, you take a test in school, the teacher knows if you study or not. He knows if you're learning or not. He knows what you've put into this class or what you didn't put into this class. And that's what's happening here, uh, to try to find out what is Abraham really made of. Testing of this kind usually involves some kind of hardship, some kind of difficulty. Tests aren't supposed to be easy, are they? Uh, and this is an extreme test, the most extreme test for Abraham in his entire life. Now, the tests God gives to people in Scripture, they're designed to reveal our obedience or lack of it. There's actually several reasons for a test from God. They, they will point out to us whether we really uh, are obeying God or not. Tests are also meant to determine the quality of God's people's faithfulness. Are we really faithful to God? It's going to determine the quality of our faith. Uh, so we ask ourselves the question, do we really love the Lord? Do we really, are we really committed to Him? Are we really uh, in love with Him? Do we really want to know Him better unreservedly? Are we given over to Him unreservedly? And tests and trials show what we're really made of. And so the Lord will test Abraham in this chapter. Now you might be thinking, well, that's Abraham's problem, not mine. <laughs> what has that got to do with me? Well, it's got a whole lot to do with you and me because uh, the Bible actually teaches uh, on this subject. And the fact of the matter is all of God's people are going to be tested from time to time, not just Abraham. That truth is found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see it in various places. For example, and I have this on your notes. Let me just read this to you, though. Exodus 16, 4. Then the Lord's, this is when they're in the wilderness, Exodus 16, 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will bring, I'm going to rain bread, I'm going to rain manna from heaven. For you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so that I may test them. Here's another test from God. Whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Why is the Lord testing the people of Israel in this case to see whether there or not, he says it, they're going to walk in my instruction and do what I say. Judges chapter 3 verse 1. This is when the... Uh, Israel went into Canaan and captured a lot of the, conquered a lot of land. They didn't conquer everybody. And, they le and so as a result, some nations were left in the land, Judges 3.1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left in Canaan to test Israel by them. That is all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Verse 5 says those nations were left, says it again, to test Israel by them, by the nations. Why? To find out if they would obey if Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Again, the Lord wants to see, what are these people made of here? Let's see what they actually are made of in real life. See whether they're going to obey me or not. 
course, God knows in advance all these things. And who is not aware of Job, the severe trial Job went through in the Old Testament? The entire book of Job deals with his trial. And then the New Testament continues the idea of God testing. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that what? The testing of your faith. Testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here the testing is, well, it just lays it all out in James chapter 1 about what this is all about. Here the, the purpose for the testing is so that God's people might become spiritually mature. The more you're tested, then the more mature you're, you're to become. 1 Peter chapter 1, again, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, Peter says, you have, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Here we go again. Why are you, uh, why are you, why are you uh, facing various trials? So that the proof of your faith, here we go, we're going to prove something. That's what testing is all about. Proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire. There's the word again. May be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Lord uses test, his test, to even bring honor and glory to Christ. He, he uses that so we'll glorify Christ. So it's not only Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis who is tested. All of God's people will be tested. Now, not in the same unique way he was, thankfully, but the Lord determines in each every life how he's going to work because he knows what you need. He knows what trials. He knows what tests he needs to bring you to strengthen you in the faith. He knows. He knows best. Charles Spurgeon said, we may regard the father of the faithful, that's Abraham, we may regard Abraham as being a pattern of his children when it comes to testing. As God dealt with Abraham, so will he deal in measure with all those who as believers are the children of believing Abraham. So God will test all his people. Now like Abraham, we too will have our faith tested, but something else occurred to me as I was thinking through Genesis chapter 22. I realized that, man, this Abraham's an old man. He's an older man at this time. Seems like Abraham was always an old man in the scripture. He started out as an old man. He gets older as it goes along. He started out at 75, but he seems to live for like 500 years. He actually lives to 175, but he's got a lot of time devoted to him in the scripture. But I got to thinking about this. What age is Abraham at this time he's being tested? Had to be, if if you figure it out, had to be somewhere between probably 113 years of age to 120. Just a young man. Somewhere between 113 and 120, probably. Uh, and you would think his days of being tried and tested are over. I mean, think about Abraham. He's, been, he's already been through all kinds of difficulties. He's, uh, he's been uh, through, uh, tested already. Isn't it time to retire? Maybe the Lord can retire Abraham from further testing. But no, he doesn't do that. Uh, he hasn't finished his school days yet. There's another test for him up ahead. This one, the most difficult of his life. We'll wait till you're really old, Abraham, and then I'm going to throw you the biggest test of all, the hardest test of all, the most difficult test. I'm going to give you that test then. And so he's still in God's seminary, Abraham is. Still learning, still yet more to learn. It's obvious, think about this, it's obvious from this passage that the trials and testings that God brings in our life can happen at any time in our life. It could be young, it could be middle-aged, it could be old. God is never through testing us, apparently. So the Lord gets Abraham's attention in verse 1. 
Abraham is ready to listen. He says, here I am, here, am, here, I, am, here am I. Remember, it reminds me of Samuel. As if, as if the, uh, Abraham was saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What do you have to tell me? Now, we're about to find out what exactly is involved in this test. God tested Abraham, verse 1. What's involved in this test? First of all, there's a startling command. In verse 2, a startling command. Verse 2 says, God said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Put yourself in Abraham's place as we're thinking through this. I have no doubt Abraham was totally caught off guard completely by the statement. Probably had no clue this was coming, and that's why I'm calling it a startling command. It startles me now as I read it. I've, every time I read this, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm startled by it and puzzled by it. The old commentator from the 1600s, Martin, uh, not Martin, but uh, rather Matthew Henry, calls it the strange command. That's how he, he describes this as the strange command. It is strange, isn't it? Isn't it, it do, you, do you agree that this is strange? Very strange that God would say this. It's very mysterious. It's perplexing. It's an unusual command. And so I say it's startling. Now, no one could have ever imagined this coming from God's mouth. This command doesn't make it doesn't seem to make any sense. And the way it's worded, it's so personal, gut-wrenchingly personal, with each phrase that God says here. You know, look look at the phrases. Verse 2: Take now your son. Even I like the way Stephen read it. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac, offer him up. With each phrase that's given, it seems to, it must dig deeper into Abraham's soul, like, oh. And he says, now let's take one phrase at a time. First of all, the Lord says, take now your son. Now, wouldn't, you would think Abraham would think that God would say, take now your lamb, not your son. Oh, you mean you want me to sacrifice a lamb? No, he doesn't say that. He says your son. Abraham had plenty of lambs. He was wealthy. He had extreme wealth. He had plenty of rams. He had plenty of oxen, goats, everything. He could offer the best of his flock. If, if God would like that, he could offer the best of his flock. He could offer all of his flock. But the Lord wants his son. And then he says, your only son. He means that the, obviously he has two sons, but he means the only son by Sarah, the promised son. Ishmael was banished from Abraham's house. Abraham had grieved over Ishmael's uh, banishment. Now he must grieve over Isaac's. And then he goes on to say, the son whom you love. Some sons are not loved by their father. Fathers have nothing to do with them. Father abandons their sons. But this, this son of Abraham was dearly loved, dearly cared for. It reminds me of what uh, the father, uh, what the Lord says about Jesus in the New Testament. This is my son, my, the son of my love, the one I love dearly. And then he says, Isaac. He keeps stretching it out one phrase at a time. Isaac. Not one of Abraham's 318 servants. Maybe I could offer one of those guys. <laughs> Not Eliezer, the chief servant. Not even Ishmael. But Isaac, the one whose name means laughter. The one Sarah brought into this world after all those years as an old woman past her childbearing age. And she said, God made laughter for me. Because that's what Isaac means, laughter. Isaac had brought such great joy to their life. Can you see him as a child growing up? You know how it is. You have a little baby, and he's real cute, and he grows up, and you look at the pictures, and, you, and they grow up, and you look at the pictures when they were growing up, and you think, wow, those, these are precious children, right? 
And so Isaac had brought such great joy into their home, and now he must be killed? Wow. And then there's the long journey. Abraham and Isaac must travel from Beersheba to the mountain range of Moriah in Jerusalem area, and that's about 45 miles, that trip. This isn't a walk in the park here. Those guys back then, they always walked a lot of miles. And once they arrive, after this long journey, Abraham has to offer his son up as a sacrifice. The words, uh, the words burnt offering, I think, are mentioned five times in this chapter, almost as if to keep emphasizing, oh, by the way, this is going to be a burnt offering, a burnt offering, a burnt offering. This is not, this is perplexing, honestly. If you look at it honestly, it's perplexing. Not only that, it's a great, it's a, it's a very great trial. I don't think anyone here would want to undergo this trial. I don't, nobody in their right mind. I don't believe, by the way, I don't believe Abraham knows, knows this is a test. Uh, we know it's a test because Moses, the writer of Genesis, reveals that to us. But Moses doesn't have the book of Genesis. I know it, uh, Moses, who's this guy? Abraham. I'll name all the patriarchs, okay? Whoever we're talking about, I think it's Abraham. Abraham doesn't have the book of Genesis in front of him to read this. Oh, it's a test. <laughs> Why didn't they tell me, you know? He doesn't know, uh, but uh, we know. So you can imagine at first, how this may have hit him. Now, understand a couple of things about God here. This severe test, we might think a lot of things. Well, I think one of the commentators said that, I think he said this not meaning to say it, but I think he, he said that God is now Abraham's worst enemy at this point. Now, let me tell you a couple things. This severe test is not intended to make God out to be some kind of an ogre, kind of a mean-spirited deity that toys with his creatures, that teases his creatures, and plays with them. Think, think, don't forget who we're talking about here. The faithful and loving God, the God who for probably over 40 years has blessed Abraham greatly. He's walked with him and he, and he told Abraham to walk before him. And he loves Abraham and he wants to bless Abraham. And he said that again and again. That's who we're talking about. He's not going to turn against Abraham now. And secondly, this test is not intended as God's endorsement of human sacrifice as we're going to discover as, if, as the story is told. And we say that because the Bible repeatedly, repeatedly calls out child sacrifice as a great evil. People were always, you know those, those incidents in the Old Testament where the pagans took it to the limit and sacrificed their children to the gods like Molech and others. There was even a guy in 2 Kings that sacrificed his son on a wall. They were losing the battle to Israel. I think it was Syria, if I'm not mistaken. Moab was, that's right, Moab was, was losing a battle to Israel. And uh, the king, seeing what happened, seeing what was going, they were, the battle was going the wrong way, decides to do the ultimate sacrifice. He sacrifices his son on the wall. And I think for the purpose of inspiring his troops is my understanding of that. And they did. They got inspired when they saw, oh, wow, this is serious. And they turned the battle and they won it. But this kind of thing took place in the Old Testament quite a bit. And that, although that happened, it was never endorsed by God, never endorsed child sacrifice. It was pure evil. God condemns it again and again in no uncertain terms. And he's not going to contradict himself here. Now, there's a reason for this test. One reason, maybe several reasons for this test, one reason is to teach Abraham and all of God's people to trust the Lord even when we are perplexed 
by what we are facing. How often are we faced with a perplexing situation, a mysterious, strange, startling situation that, that comes our way and we don't understand it? What do we do? We trust the Lord. There are often times in our life we don't have the first clue as to how the Lord's working. We don't, we don't understand it. One writer said, there will be times when you cannot make head nor tail of what God is doing. So what do we do in those cases? We trust him anyway. We're called to trust him anyway, even in those moments. And if there ever was a startling command from God, this is it. What else is happening in this test? Secondly, there's a prompt obedience. A prompt obedience, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, the natural response of, of Abraham or anybody who had been just, just been told what he's been told in verse 2 would be something like, whoa, 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 Lord, <laughs> let's not be hasty here. Maybe we can come up with a more reasonable solution, preferably one that doesn't involve the killing of my son. Maybe we can do that. That's what probably many would do, but Abraham doesn't do that. What does he do in verse 3? There's no, there's no argument here. There's no discussion. There's no appeal to God's, Lord, I, I don't understand any of this. Let me make an appeal to you. There's none of that going on. There's no bartering, no negotiation. There's only prompt obedience right away, immediate compliance to the Lord's will. It's the obedience of one who's been walking with the Lord for several years. What does he do? Verse 3. He gets up early in the morning. He doesn't delay his departure until later in the day, maybe hoping that God will forget about this whole testing business. He saddles his donkey. He gets two of his uh, servants to help him, assist him on the way. And he gets Isaac as well. They also get the wood ready for the offering. Abraham even splits the wood. Uh, to get it to the right size. Can you imagine doing that, knowing what lies ahead? You're splitting the wood in order to prepare the wood, to, in order to lay your son upon it, in order to kill him. Abraham's doing this. But he does it without question. Then they travel in the direction of Moriah. Now, I doubt seriously, I thought about Sarah and all this. I doubt seriously Sarah, his wife, knew about any of this. I don't, it doesn't say. I doubt that Abraham's told her about this journey or the real intent of it. Can you imagine that? The way she protected her son Isaac in chapter 21, I, I think she would have flipped out if she would have heard about this, this one. Understandably so. But Abraham, our spiritual father in the faith, shows us what it is to obey God in extremely difficult circumstances. He hears the word of God, and then he gets moving right away, and there's, there's no... There's no dispute about this whatsoever. Now, it's one thing to hear the word of God. It's quite another to actually obey it. That's where the problem lies, right there with most people. The Bible calls for the total, the total and complete surrenders of our will to God. Not always something we want to hear, by the way, let alone do. We can be good hearers of the word. We're not always such great doers of it. The failure, failure comes to act decisively and follow through on what we know what the Word of God teaches, we, we hear what it says, and then we don't follow through on it. And so, but Abraham does, a prompt obedience. There's a third thing involved in this test, and that is an uncommon faith. An uncommon faith, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. I wonder, you know, he's been walking for a couple days. 
I wonder what he was thinking while they were traveling for those two or three days. I wonder what he was feeling. The thing is, we're never going to know because we're not told. It never, if you notice this, it never mentions anything about his thoughts or his feelings. Nothing. It, it only reports the facts. We're told he loves his son at the beginning, obviously. There's no comment as to his emotional condition here. It's not stated that he's weeping or he's groaning or he is expressing agony in his soul. It's just a very matter-of-fact stating of the words, father and son are simply walking together to go to the location. Now, I do know that in Genesis 21, 11, when Ishmael was banished from the house, it said it, it, said it greatly distressed Abraham, greatly distressed over the banishment of Ishmael. But I don't see that here in chapter 22. It never says he was greatly distressed here. Uh, wouldn't you think Abraham would experience far more distress over a son who was on the verge of being killed by his own hand versus a son who had left the house only but was still alive? And yet there's no record of any distress. It doesn't say that anywhere. Now, I, I know we like to read into the Bible a lot of things when we're reading it. We, we have to be careful about that, by the way. We have to go with what it actually says or what it implies. And I, I know we can you know, have a little bit of what they call sanctified imagination. I'm not saying we can't think through things carefully here. However, we have to go by what the scripture says. I'm not saying there's no feelings of anguish here, no heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching emotions. This is his son, right? His only son, the son whom he loves. Seems reasonable to think that he would be weighed down with this unimaginable burden. I'm sure I would be. But again, the text mentions none of that. What this tells me is that Abraham's faith is stronger than his feelings. Whatever his feelings were, and they're not even mentioned here, we know one thing for sure. He has strong faith in God. He's trusting the Lord. Based on what the text actually does say, I believe Abraham is displaying a remarkably uncommon faith. This is not typical. Not at all. It's in, in verse 4, he's been walking around. On the third day, you can see the destination. There it is up ahead. I've got to kill my son. He had time to think. Now, that can be a problem when you have time to think, especially when you have days to think, weeks or months or even years. If you're thinking about a difficult situation, you have your mind set on that difficult situation, something you're facing in your life, something that's difficult, something that nobody else understands, something nobody else may care about even, but you're facing it. It's a big deal to you. Uh, if you're not focusing on Christ, those thoughts can overwhelm you completely, overtake you completely. It's tough enough as it is without keeping Christ at an arm's length distance. So those thoughts can depress you. They can discourage you. They can defeat you. You have to take those thoughts captive to Christ. And it looks to me, this is what Abraham is doing here. He's trusting the Lord. Now, the passage indicates Abraham believed God over his own feelings. Look what it says in verse 5. What a great verse this is. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. We're going to go to the Moriah. And we will worship and return to you. We will worship. Worship. That's how he sees this. We're going to worship. And then he says, we're going to return to you. We will worship and return. Who is we? Abraham and Isaac. That's Abraham says, we will return. He, and in effect, he says, gentlemen, we're coming back. 
but we're going to worship first. That was the last thing he did in the previous chapter. We, we read the verse, verse 33 of chapter 21. What did he do? He worshiped the eternal, everlasting God. And now we can see he's trusting the everlasting God. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood and of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in his hands, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, here am I, my son. You see the tender language all throughout father, son, father, son, son, father. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It suddenly dawns on Isaac after all this time. Hey, wait a minute. We have wood. We have, uh, we're able to make a fire, but we don't have an offering. Where's the lamb for, the, for an offering, he says. Now watch Abraham's second statement of uncommon faith. Look at verse 8. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. You know, I read this statement. I'm tempted to say uh, what Jesus said of the Roman centurion in Luke 8. I have not found such great faith, no, not in Israel. And I see great faith from Abraham. Not only did he exercise faith in the Lord, think about something else. Abraham, clearly, his statement is one of great faith. In light of these circumstances, not only does he show great faith in the Lord here, but he's also doing what? He's teaching his son to trust the Lord by his example and by his words. By the very, Isaac hears this. How important that is. We, you know, a lot of times when we're under pressure in our lives, we might blurt out things that are anything but faith, uh, you know, uh, building Words, uh, encouraging words, helpful words, edifying words. We might say just the opposite of that. But when we're under pressure as believers, we should still cling to Christ and, and teach our children and our grandchildren by our example and by our trust in the Lord. We should, instead of giving in to self-pity, which, which is what we usually do, right, many times, our emotions, our fears, we should cultivate an attitude of faith in our families. This is what Abraham did. So when you're in the trial, in the middle of it, the test, you should be trying, you're teaching your children by your attitude, by your words, by your behavior. Hey, children, uh, this is very difficult. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how we're going to pay these bills. However, we're going to trust God anyway. That's what we should do. John Calvin made a great statement about this. He said this, we act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from him but what our senses can perceive. When we hope for nothing from God but what our senses can perceive, in other words, we're, we're on the level of just sensory perception. We're not trusting God. We're just thinking about what, what it looks like in front of us. That's all we can see. That's what Calvin said. And on the other hand, Calvin said, so, we, so at, at, on the opposite side of things, we pay God the highest honor when in matters of perplexity, when we are perplexed, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in his providence. In other words, he said, we trust, the Lord not, we trust in the Lord not in our feelings when we are perplexed. In other words, when we're perplexed by a situation, we're going to put our trust in the Lord not, and not express our feelings as they naturally would be. We don't do that. That's a great statement. We're going to trust in God. Now, two thoughts concerning Abraham's uncommon faith. Think about this. How does he have such great faith here? What is this? He's been told to pull his, put his son to death. And he says, no, God's going to provide a lamb. We're going to return. We're coming back. We're going to worship. Or God's going to provide a, a sacrifice, at least. 
He knew the Lord had promised to make Isaac a great nation. He had heard God's promises again and again. He knew these promises. Isaac's going to be a great nation. The world's going to be blessed through him and so on. And you're going to, it's going to culminate in Christ. The Lord had repeatedly promised this. And guess what? Abraham actually believed it. He believed it. So on the one hand, he's trusting God's promise. God said, wait a minute. He wants me to put my son to death, but he said he was going to bless Isaac. He can't die right now. On the other hand, he also believed in the possibility that God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. Where does it say that at? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Now, you can turn there if you want, or if you have your notes, they're in front of you on the notes, but Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, just so you'll see this passage, is when God, this is what the writer of Hebrews under the divine inspiration said, Hebrews 11, 17 and 19 says this, By faith Abraham, now he's going back to Genesis 22, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and the one who had received the promises, promises about Isaac, was offering up his only son. It was, it was he to whom it was said, Through Isaac your descendants shall be named. It's all on Isaac. It's all, it's all the money's on Isaac. He considered, God considered, or I'm sorry, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Abraham even believed it was possible for God to raise Isaac from the dead, if that's what he was going to do. That, now that's trusting God. That's uncommon faith. He's ready to go sacrifice his son because he knows that God's going to take care of this somehow, some way. Look at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham does what every father in this room would, be, would think unthinkable, uh, consider unthinkable. He binds his son Isaac on the altar. Think about doing that yourself. The word bound occurs here only once at this time, uh, this location in the Old Testament. It means to bind the legs of an animal for sacrifice. By the way, this whole chapter is known in Jewish tradition as the binding of Isaac. That's what the Jews call this chapter, the binding of Isaac, based on this right here. Now, what's amazing here is that there's no struggle recorded when Isaac is bound on this altar. Nobody, there's nothing mentioned about that. Isaac offers no resistance at all. From what I read here, being younger, being more energetic, maybe even stronger than his much older father, depending on his age, he could have tried to resist. He could have tried, but he does not do that. Isaac, only thing I can think of is Isaac must have willingly submitted to his father's and to God's command to get on the altar. He binds him, and there's no argument. There's no, there's no struggle at all. Because Isaac now realizes he's the sacrifice. Oh, I asked that question, where's the lamb? Oh, I'm the lamb. I'm the sacrifice. Now, I thought immediately of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And here's a beautiful illustration right here. But like his father, Isaac's faith leads him to a prompt obedience. It might be that probably because he's believing the word his father spoke, God's going to provide a lamb, my son. And he sees his father's faith, and he knows his father's faith, and he trusts in all that. God's, uh, Abraham said, God's going to provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And so Isaac, as, as Abraham's child, had the faith of, a of his child, of a child, and he knew his father also had the same childlike faith. 
Let me go back to verse 8 for a second. Just as in verse 1 where it says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. The, the, la the language here shows special attention being placed upon the person of God in more than one ways. But to keep it simple, we're going to say this. God will provide for himself the lamb. In other words, God himself is going to provide this lamb. That word provide comes from a, a, a word that means to see. That's why your version, may, your version may read, the Lord will see to it if it says something like that. But the word see in this case has the nuance of provide. So the Lord's going to see to it that he solves this problem by providing a lamb, Abraham says. Now at this point, that's another great statement of faith. At this point, all, all that's left to do is to offer up Isaac on the altar. And so we come to verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now the narrative here is very deliberate and slow, which enables us to feel the tension. Uh, but I will say it's not as dramatic as some preachers portray it. I have seen... First of all, I've seen a lot of interesting sermons in my life and heard a lot of interesting, very entertaining sermons on my head in my lifetime. You don't even know what, what was said in those sermons. Uh, but I have heard preachers say, and Abraham got the knife and raised it up and came down to his chest, you know, a 16th inch away from his chest, nearly piercing his skin, and God says, stop. That's not what it says here, though. I mean, it says... Abraham reached out to get the knife in order to slay his son, actually to slaughter his son. He simply grabs the knife. It's not read as a Hollywood script here. It's not what's happening. He just prepared to slaughter his son. There's, there's enough drama in this passage already without making more. We don't make, need to make this a Hollywood movie here. But the question is, does the Lord test his people? He does. If you don't believe so, ask Abraham. The second action that the Lord takes here is that the Lord provides for Abraham. Verses 11 to 14, he provides for Abraham. Verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing for, to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now this is the heart of the passage. This is the most important part. In verse 11, notice it, who it is who calls out from heaven. It's the angel of the Lord, it says. Uh, which I take to be an appearance of uh, of Christ in the Old Testament before his New Testament coming into the world. Now, I know there's a debate about that. But why do I say that? Uh, in verses 15 and 16, the angel of the Lord is referred to as the Lord himself, and yet he's also distinct from the Lord. And so we take it that this is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. He's mentioned in other places in the Old Testament. He's mentioned back in Genesis 16. If I ever get time to go into that subject, I will. So far, I haven't had time. we got to keep moving on here. But... The angel gets, uh, of the Lord gets Abraham's attention by calling his name twice, like he did the first verse. And Abraham answers, and I, I guarantee you Abraham is thrilled to hear his voice. In verse 12, the phrase, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, that indicates urgency and, and to, uh, for Abraham to immediately halt what he's doing, and it is an urgent situation. And he stops. Now in verse 2, the Lord had said, offer Isaac as a burnt offering. In verse 12, he says, do nothing to him. So it's all beginning to turn here. And it's clear to the Lord who knows, already knows all things, now has that foreknowledge confirmed in real time 
The Lord knew Abraham would not fail the test. He knew that. He had been preparing him for probably over 40 years for this test. And he taught Abraham through the experiences of life to trust in him. And so this is what happens. He's trusting in him. Abraham is a man who truly fears the Lord. We see that now. Now, there were times in his life, when you look back on his life, that sometimes the fear of man seemed to loom larger than the fear of God. We can look at a couple examples back there if we had time. But when he's put to the ultimate test, he reveals himself as a man who fears God more than anything. Now, how do we know? Look at verse 12. The Lord says, Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham was not going to withhold anything from the Lord. He's going to surrender all. He's the Lord's lock, stock, and barrel. He trusts in him completely. There's no doubt that he loves the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, James in the New Testament adds something to this account. James chapter 2, verse 21, if you want to turn there. James 2, 21. I don't want to neglect what the guys in the New Testament said about this passage. James 2, 21 and following. He comments on this. James apparently read Genesis 22. And he makes a comment here. He says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, that's enough to get Baptists all riled up, right? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. What a great statement. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does James mean? Is James saying that, uh, doesn't Paul the Apostle teach that, uh, that we're saved by faith alone? Is that, is that what he says? Yes, he does say that. We're justified, we're declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. James is not contradicting Paul. He's simply teaching us that people who are saved by faith show up by their works. If you're saved, you're going to express that salvation through your works. It's going to come out. It's just going to naturally come out because faith works. We're saved by faith, yes. Don't get me wrong. Now, when James says Abraham was justified by works, he means he was vindicated by works. He was proven to be righteous by his works. His offering of Isaac in obedience to God's command clearly demonstrates his salvation, his genuine salvation. A person justified by faith is going to be vindicated through their works. And so that's, how, that's, that's what's happening. When the Lord saves a person, that person lives like he's saved. Now, if a person says he's saved and he doesn't live like that, that's another problem. He's got to deal with that. But this episode is not over. Look at verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham took that ram and offered up him up in place of his son. Now, the Lord does not bring a lamb as Abraham had assumed. By the way, just a little sidelight, be careful of your theological assumptions. You might assume something that may not exactly be what you thought it was, but that's not the point here. The point is that God provided a sacrifice, whatever it was. He provided a sacrifice. He didn't tell Abraham, I'm going to provide a lamb. He just, he provided a sacrifice. In fact, in chapter 15, Abraham was told by God, one of the animals to offer up in chapter 15 was a ram. And notice those wonderful words at the end of verse 13. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering. And here's the words. In the place of his son. Wow, those are some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. In the place of his son. The ram took the place of the son. Now in theology, as we point to Christ, we call that term substitutionary atonement. As sinners, 
we cannot save ourselves. We need someone to take our place. Someone to be sacrificed for us. Someone to die in our place as our sacrifice. The only person that could do that, that could fit that bill, was Christ himself. No one else could do it. Christ died in our place as our substitute. He was the only one who obeyed God perfectly always, all of his life, never sinned. Only one who never sinned. Now, Abraham obeys. Yes, he's an obedient servant here, but Abraham is a sinner too. We've seen Abraham sin already. Isaac obeys, but Isaac is a sinner too. Neither one had always perfectly obeyed, but Christ always did. He's the only one suited to take our place, to bear the wrath of God. And as Abraham did not withhold his only son, neither did God. Romans 8.32 says, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. He didn't spare him. God the Father did not spare his son. Can you imagine how the Lord God felt about that? The Lord spares Isaac, but he doesn't spare Jesus later on. Jesus went to the cross and died unimaginable suffering and took the, bore the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. Genesis 22, 13 points to our need for a sacrificial uh, death. That's why when John the Baptist saw Christ, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a loaded verse for sure, but what, what it's teaching is what we call the great exchange. So I, my, my sins for Christ's righteousness. Christ died for my sins, and he gives me his righteousness as I put my faith in him. Now, you may be here tonight dead in your trespasses and sins. Maybe you're dead in your sins. Just know that Christ can forgive you of your sins and make you a new creation in Christ. If you turn from your sin and turn to him in faith, Look at verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it'll, it'll be provided. Appropriate name for this verse. verse. Verse 8, Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb. Verse 13, the Lord does provide that sacrificial lamb, animal rather, ram. Verse 14, Abraham commemorates this place by calling it, hey, why don't I call this the Lord will provide? Or Yahweh Yireh, or as the King James says, famously, Jehovah Jireh. God, the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. And in time, that name is going to become popular. And it is going to be, and people are going to call, have a saying they develop. And they're going to say, in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And it's going to stand as a witness to this day, it says. I assume the time of Moses' writing. It stands as, as a memorial to God's faithfulness, who is the one that always provides. So the Lord tests Abraham. He provides for Abraham. Finally, the Lord blesses Abraham. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. See that? Called the angel of the Lord in verse 15. Verse 16, called the Lord himself. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because they have obeyed my voice. You have obeyed my voice, rather. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba. Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let me ask this question. Did Abraham's, did, did the Abrahamic covenant depend upon Abraham's obedience alone? <laughs> no, it did not. The Lord himself stood behind this covenant and its fulfillment from chapters 12 onward to here. 
And now Abraham's obedience is the icing on the cake. You have to consider the whole context, really, from chapter 12 to chapter 22, to see that God is behind this covenant. But also understand, he expects obedience from his servants. And, and also understand this, the Lord re does reward obedience. It says that several times in the Bible. One last thing, verse 19, Abraham returned to his young men. Go back to verse 5. Abraham said to his young men before the sacrifice, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and do what? We're going to return to you. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men. They said they would return. They did it. Abraham trusted in the Lord throughout this test and the Lord shows himself faithful to Abraham. Amazing. The Lord will test his people. You and I can count on it. We can count on it. He wants to develop our faith. He does it to mature us in Christ. He does it so that we'll bring glory to him. You say, how can I pass the test like Abraham did? Well, remember, he's given us his spirit to walk with us through the test and the trials. He's given us his promises to cling to. We can believe those promises as Abraham did. He's given us himself to lean on for strength. That's what we always do. Nothing's ever changed. The Lord is faithful. Thank God for his provision in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for your word, what is, how it teaches us. Uh, Lord, we are often perplexed in our life with difficult things that face Maybe tonight some people here have uh, things that are facing them that are difficult. We pray for them tonight. You'll give them the grace and sustain them to look to you, to trust in you, to get them through these things, Lord, to strengthen their faith in Christ, to make them what you'd have them to be for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.